the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. So, Pamela, as we were talking just before the break, there is a longing of God's creation for him. And really, there's also God who longs for us. And, of course, the deeper we go in that longing, the deeper he draws us in. Um, yes. There's so much we see in Scripture about surrendering. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Christ ultimately modeled that, my goodness, the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. And knowing the pain that he knew he would be facing, and yet to be able to have the stamina to say, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes. Even in that moment. Yes. Christ demonstrated to us what it means to fully surrender to God. And then watch as we see that story unfold from Gethsemane to then Golgotha and eventually on that hill hung on the tree. And then, of course, the good news of the resurrection on the third day. We see how God was there through all of that. Even at the moment when he utters, God, why have you forsaken me? We, Mm -hmm. We fully understand that, in fact, God had not forsaken him at any point. And maybe that's the big important message that that readers can extrapolate from your book, that even though we go through these experiences, as you recount the story of losing Maggie, Sean to suicide at the age of 16, your marriage after 23 years, that God is still with us, even though sometimes it doesn't always feel like that. Yes. He hasn't forsaken us. And if we will reach out to him, he will reach back to us, won't he? Well, I think God is reaching out to us before we reach out to God. You know, I think we're already in God's lap. This is very true, isn't it? (laughs) And uh, God is waiting for us. God was never lost. God was never lost. I I remember just getting so, so upset and so sad one day because we had moved and I was in a place that I had never lived before and, and a neighborhood that was very foreign to me. We moved from the from the east coast was this the tennessee experience yeah to yeah. tennessee mm-hmm. and i that's where i really was lonely and isolated and and really depressed uh, yeah, i got the a, east coast or, or walnut creek on the other end and then tennessee that's a culture right. shock and it? yeah and so i i was like a fish out of water really and i remember just plunking myself down in this chair and and just raising my eyes and and my hands and saying god where are you and I heard back, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you know? It was there so, all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And that was, that was another turning point. It was, you know, these, these moments where I realized, I would realize that I had this magnificent relationship, this magnificent love relationship. And, uh, you know, God was always 
poking at me and, and trying to wake me up to that. So those peaks on the uh, the Richter scale, like exactly. an earthquake, you know, they don't happen all the time. Right. But those earthquakes that sometimes can uh, jostle us, yes, they can be upsetting, like some of the events in life can be upsetting. Yeah. And yet they can also be those those shocking moments that will awaken a sense of the spiritual in us. That's right. Drive us back toward Scripture, back toward the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, when life is going well, what do you need God for? But it's in those moments when life is shaking us like an earthquake that we suddenly now can open our eyes and and realize that it's more about than just the pain and the loss and the grieving and the trying to figure it out. It's about allowing God to love us in and through those negative experiences, the terrible things that most of the world works very hard to try to avoid or anesthetize the pain of. And experience God in the pain. Yeah. yeah. You know, Paul talked about knowing Christ in the power of the resurrection. And people like to put the period right there. Boom. I like that. Boy, the resurrection. Look at that. Raised from the dead. Can't beat that. Right. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we, we like that power of the resurrection part, but getting to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and realizing, as you mentioned earlier, that he knows. He can relate. He knows mm-hmm. what we're going through. Exactly. And in and through that, then we can find that sense of, of peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding. Yes. Yeah. And that certainly has been your experience, hasn't it? It really has been my experience. And that's really why I wrote the book, because I feel very blessed. I I find now, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but majority of my prayer is a prayer of gratitude mm-hmm. because of my life. I just feel deeply blessed. I have a beautiful marriage and live in a beautiful part of the world and i don't know god is just blessing me <laughs> let's talk about briefly the beautiful part of the world that you live in down oh. <laughs> in in twain Hart. um you and your husband um operate just a, a wonderful location there you've had a retreat center for many many years that i understand is now available and boy a family looking for a great place to get away to or maybe um, even a religious organization that says, hey, we'd like to just get a, a, a small, neat little retreat center in the middle of the, the spectacular uh, California Redwoods. You're about an hour north of Yosemite. So listeners that know the Twain Heart area immediately know we're talking about a little slice of heaven here on this side. Um, you've got a beautiful piece of property there. Tell us a bit about it. Well, it's, uh, it's five acres. And um, when Dave and I moved there, we started to recreate it it had fallen into great disrepair so we rebuilt the house uh, completely really i think there was one stick left by the time (laughs) the contractor got in and started ripping things out Uh, and so we built a beautiful home but then we built a tree house that's 35 feet above the ground and uh, that was all architecturally designed and built by a by a man from maine who we brought to help us build this and the community built it on the ground, and we lifted it up with a crane. Uh, we've had a lot of fun on the property. The property has a lake that's all spring-fed, and it has a stream that goes through it. And then we have another guest house that's on the lake, that it floats on the lake. It has a float, and uh, these buildings are yurts. We have a writer's studio, and we also have another yurt that was really our chapel. And... Um, we did healing circles every month. And you've done a lot of writing there on the property, too, I have. I, I moved there to write, and so that's where I wrote the book. So it really is, is the kind of environment that can allow you to get away from the madness of 
uh, of all the, the busyness of the big cities, so yes. to speak. And, and, you know, what better place if you're looking to reconnect with God or go deeper with God than yes. to get out there in his creation right. where you suddenly realize that sparrows cast shadows when the sun is in the right direction um, and that there's other noise than the sound of passing fire engines and helicopters and the airport nearby mm-hmm. and really be able to kind of just bask in the glory of that creation yes it's beautiful it's very peaceful people say when they come on retreat uh we have three guest houses for retreats they say uh this place is magical or they say it's so peaceful and we've had i think that the place has just grown in terms of its sense you know when you go in a church you feel really a beautiful energy Mm -hmm. and i I think it's because people pray there and many, many people have come to the property and, and prayed and meditated and done retreats. So you feel that energy on the property, aside from the fact that the trees and the water are exquisite energetically and the birds and all the little animals that live there. And as beautiful as a, a chapel can be, it's still made by the hands of man. And yet you're you're in a chapel there that is literally created by the very hand of God himself. Exactly. Can't really compete with that, can no, you? No, you can't. Folks want to get more information, um, I'll send you to the website, twobearsdancing.org. That's twobearsdancing.org. And I want to thank Pamela Prime for dropping by and sharing today. It's been great to visit with you. Thank you, Craig. More information again on the web, twobearsdancing.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Imagine this. America Today, as we speak has $100 billion in student loan debt, $90 billion outstanding in automobile loans. You look at some of the prices coming out of Detroit and elsewhere, not surprised. $50 billion in credit card debt. And consumer debt overall, this is unsecured debt, $3.2 trillion. I guess it's no surprise, therefore, that 65% of divorce decrees in the United States today are because of finances. At the end of the day, irresponsible money management is something that we all learn. Well, if that be the case, then how can we have the talk, the conversation with our children so that we learn them properly when it comes to money management. Joining me now is Scott and Bethany Palmer, authors of The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And Scott and Bethany, welcome to both of you. Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Now, I'm curious with your own family. um, What prompted you to decide and at what age that this was a conversation you needed to have with the kids? That's a great question. Um, for the really last 10 years, Bethany and I have been working with couples all over the world when it comes to love and money and the conversations that we need to have as couples. And we were constantly getting asked, well, how do we talk to our kids about this? Um, we're actually the creators of something called the five money personalities, and we have a pretty amazing assessment online for individuals and couples to take to be able to understand who they are and what their money personalities are. And so we were being constantly asked, how do we deal with our kids and how do we deal with our kids? So that put us on a journey to really figure out and try to understand 
what what we're dealing with. We have currently a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so or 11-year-old. So we're in the middle of this whole parent thing. And, and what we found in kind of the way that we made our book really applicable to parents is that we found that every age is a little different. So really, starting at age five, we need to start having conversations with our kids. And what we found between the ages of five and 12 is when kids become entitled. Then you jump into the teenage years. And between 13 and 17 is when we can, and a lot do, teach their kids to be materialistic. And then what we found 18 and beyond, 18 to 25, but you know, we've got literally 35-year-olds still living in mom and dad's basement, is that 18 to 25 is when they become what we call financially dependent. And so we're dealing with three different age groups. We're dealing with different conversations that need to take place in those, age, in those different ages because we're really addressing three different major issues which every parent is facing. Yeah, and this seems to be, Bethany, so obvious in the sense that I think all parents recognize early on that their child's personalities are, are shaped and, and molded. Part of that is a product of environment and their own personalities and so forth. So if their overall personality is developed at such an early age, why not their personality, quote-unquote, related to money or how they, how they grow up viewing money, relating to money, and, and uh, the role that money p- plays in their lives? Well, it's interesting. God talks about money more than just about any other subject in the Bible because he knew how much it was going to impact us every day. A lot of times people think money just impacts us on our financial planning, making sure we have our insurance and retirement, investments and taxes and estate planning all taken care of. Those are all very important. But what the truth of the matter is, is you have everyday decisions that you have to make very quickly when it comes to money. Simple things like, are you going to go out to eat? Uh, or, or, bag, or brown bag your lunch? Are you going to go to and get an expensive cup of coffee, or are you going to brew it at home? And our children are going to be and are starting at very young ages dealing with the same exact thing. And so what, has to, what we have found is that it can be such an encouragement to children to really understand their perspective of money, which we, have, we can talk about here and flesh this out a little bit. We can we say with our whole heart, we know that God made our money personalities. Are they impacted by our parents? Yes, but, but the way we look at money, and we have some examples we can share here in a little bit, but with that being said, we as parents better understand our own children's two money personalities, and then with that in mind, how encouraging it is to have these conversations. Because everybody knows what kind of conversations maybe you should have, but how do you have them in a way that your children will hear them and not re- rebel against them? Well, and maybe even a bigger sort of preliminary question for parents, and this, uh, Scott, I imagine is a difficult one for, well, perhaps not all parents, certainly a good percentage of them based on the statistics I cited a moment ago, and that is, you know, every parent is nervous about the time coming when they have to have the talk. Usually that's birds and the bees. The talk. Yeah, and 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 the birds and the bees talk. I would imagine for some parents might even come easier. And I and I, I phrase it that way, Scott, for this reason. 
Having the conversation with your children about money, their money personality, their relationship to money, and what that's going to look like when they move into their adult life, uh, doesn't it require some introspection in terms of of the parent getting a handle on their own money personality? Because let's face it, there are spenders and there are savers, and you walk through all of these different money personalities. Well, what happens when you're a parent trying to sit down with um, your child and lecture he or she on what it means to be a saver when, in fact, the one doing the lecturing is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-certified spender? Well, I mean, that, that is a great point because what, what often happens is we naturally try to make our kids like our money personality is. And so if you're, by chance, let's say maybe you're a, uh, you're a primary, we have two money personalities, but let's say you're a primary saver and your kid is a primary spender. You're always going to be making comments like, you know, well, that money just burns a hole in your pocket within a matter of minutes, or you need to have a savings plan. And part of what we tried to do with our book was say, hey, how do you talk when your money personalities are different than your kids? And, and even more importantly, how do you talk to your kids when maybe you've made some money mistakes? Because we've all made money mistakes, but I think everybody listening would agree those are great learning opportunities, too, for our kids. If we can say, hey, listen, this is what your mom and I did. Ended up being a bad, a bad decision that we made, but this is how we corrected it, and this is how we got out of it. Because when you start having those conversations, and when you start not only speaking to their money personality, but also being vulnerable with where you've succeeded and where you've failed, it, that's where really the communication can begin. And I think often what happens is we think as parents we're supposed to just you know, give this huge amount of wisdom to our children, and they're just going to look at us in awe and be like, wow, mom and dad really have all this money stuff figured out. It's not going to happen. Let me give you an example. Um, my, I have a son who is a primary spender. And so we don't, use, we don't even use words like um, save money. We have a future spending plan set up for him. That's the kind of language that he is going to understand. And, you know, I think of um, my relationship with my mom, and we could not be a more opposite side of the spectrum. I'm a primary spender and secondary risk taker. So I'm kind of on that spender risk taker side. She is on the totally other side of the spectrum. She's a saver security seeker. And we butted heads so much growing up because those little money decisions would come up. Like, perfect example, I was a competitive swimmer, nationally ranked swimmer. Swimming was a big part of my life. And my coach told me that I needed to get this new swimsuit. And my mom gave me, I mean, it was expensive. And my mom just gave me the biggest, made the biggest deal out of that. It really, in retrospect, wasn't that much money. But to her, it was because she's a saver. And savers, I mean, that you can never save enough money for a saver. And so, really, it made me feel like I wasn't worth buying that swimsuit. Mm. So there's a lot of, we, cannot, we can be unintentional consequences of not understanding your child's money personalities is you are putting them down, squelching them of who they are and how they've been uniquely made, and you don't even know it. And that's where the challenge is, is, you know, parents think, oh, well, I need to teach them this or that. But if you're teaching them in a way that they can hear it, that they can relate to it, that it makes sense to them because of the way that they were uniquely made and the way that they perceive money, you know, we all, we all, not all of us have a real healthy relationship when it even comes to money. You know, money is something that, that we work with and we talk about, like I said, a little bit every single day. 
And if we don't have ourselves figured out and then we don't understand our children, we're do, like I said, unintended consequences are happening and really impacting our, our relationships with our children. On Not today's to- edition of Lifeline, a look at the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. By the way, we've got four complimentary copies of the book we're going to be giving out here coming up just momentarily. Meanwhile, we'll take a pause, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, if it's true that opposites attract, how problematic can that be for not only children, but eventually when they grow up to be adults in married life? We'll get to that part of the equation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us today. They're known as the Money Couple. We're talking about their latest book, The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And let's talk about this notion of opposites attract. We always hear that when it comes to relationships. And I'm wondering how problematic is that certainly later in life when, you know, as you were suggesting before the break, Bethany, uh, boy, you get a husband and wife team together and one is the spender risk taker combination. The other is the saver security saker. Wow, that can really <laughs> create quite a firestorm. That and you're I, not kidding. And, oh. and I would imagine the earlier in life the kids recognize who they are, what their personality looks like, the easier it will be later in life, relationally speaking, to deal with all that. You know, it is so true. You know, we always say, Scott and I always say, opposites attract, but then you get married and opposites attack. And the problem is when the money conversations come up or, or decisions that you need to make about money, money um, that decisions that you need to make that involve money, that's where the problems happen. And then they, the conflict happens all the time. The more opposite you are, the more challenges you're going to have. And you are so correct. If you can understand this as a young child, it's so fun. Our, our children starting at age seven is when they started to really understand with their money personalities and say things to us like, like, Mom, you're a risk taker, so don't you want to do that? You know, it's amazing to us how at such a young age how kids can learn these things and think about how uh, the next generation of marriages, how much healthier they can be because they understand this. Now, we're not saying that you can't marry your opposite because most of the time we're attracted to it. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it makes you a better person. It's a more exciting relationship. The, chal- the thing is, though, is if you realize this, and then when those challenges come up, you know where they're coming from, and you're not putting the person down, you're, you're, you're trying to deal and understand their many personalities. Now, now, some listening right now might be thinking, well, this, this makes sense, okay, so it, there's not a prohibition against it, but probably life would be easier if instead of marrying the opposite, we married the equal. But I have to wonder, Scott, if that is not we're out with problems as well. For example, if you get two spender risk takers together, my goodness, that's <laughs> that's yeah. going to mean there's never any money in the house. That's or right. That's right. They, they will instantly help that three point trillion dollars. <laughs> yes, in, it in will. Your debt. So yeah, yep, and, and that's right. that's a great point mm-hmm. that um, we need to make. We we do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with couples, and sometimes they'll take the money personality assessment, and they'll be like, "We have four money personalities. Are we going to survive?" And we say, "Absolutely," because really those differences can really become your strengths inside your relationship. The spender, if they're married to a saver, they both have 
really positive points of their money personality and really negative points of their money personality. But if they can get those money personalities in balance, if they can learn, okay, this is why and how I personally deal with money, and here's my relationship with money. Oh, and now I have this other person, and they have a different relationship with money. So not only are they getting themselves in check, but they're also understanding who their spouses are. That's how they can really have a really healthy, what we call a money-healthy relationship. And what we find is that couples that get married that have the same money personalities are much, are much more less likely to argue. Bethany and I's primary money personalities are both spenders. So if she goes and spends money, uh, we don't usually have an argument about that or tension. Where our tension hits is that she's a risk taker and I'm a security seeker. Secondarily. Secondarily. So we have the opportunity. That's where we have conflicts. And so it's just really important to know that uh, what those money personalities are because your kids are going to be modeled how you communicate about money. And that's really important to understand. The kids are watching everything. We've had about 60,000 people take this assessment online. And of that 60,000, the, the percentage of married couples that took it, 80% of those had an opposite dynamic in their relationship. So 80% of the married couples that we surveyed had a, a different opposite money personality. So you, you talk about a, a 65% divorce rate. Actually, what we found is statistically the divorce rate is between 48 and 55%, depending on who you're using. But 70% of all divorces, the number one reason that was listed was conflicts over money. And so when we found that 80% of, of couples were married to their money opposite, we weren't surprised at all mm -hmm. with that 70%. So here's the great thing. Here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that you can succeed in a relationship, that once you understand who you are, you've got a much better chance of understanding who your spouse is. Once you have a much better chance of understanding how your spouse is, then you can get on the same page and you can have an amazing family that understands that open communication about money is good. Mom and dad don't always see eye to eye about money, but they know how to communicate about it. And then your kids can trust. You. And this and also so means that we have a greater degree of responsibility, don't we, as parents, in the sense that, you know, we're typically thinking about providing them with a good moral foundation. We take them to church. We make sure that they get a decent education, prepare them for life, things of that sort. But it makes the money talk, apparently, Scott, all that more important, because what you're really doing is setting a, a foundation, not only for that child's economic health and well-being later on in life, but their marital health and well-being as well. So now all of a sudden, conversations over um, allowances, for example, and do you get it or do you earn it, that suddenly becomes a very important discussion. Absolutely. And, and what we find is, uh, what we have found is that often parents exclude their, their conversations um, about allowance. So what you've really got really to figure out is your kid's money personality so that you have, so that, that you have the opportunity to speak into them. So for instance, my 11-year-old um, is a primary spender, and at about the age of, of um, eight, what we decided we would do as a family with allowances, really from five to eight, five to nine, we didn't, uh, we gave them an allowance, and now they earn their money. And so the cool thing that we created for, for parents, because we were like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to make a, a decision or figure out how, who our kids' money personalities are. So what we did was we started looking at all these different age groups. We started coming up with questions, and we started watching the kids to help parents figure out how to assess their children when it came to their money personalities. So like a big one was Easter candy. 
we watched how kids interacted with their Easter candy. Some saved it, some consumed it quickly, some traded it, some had a plan on their consumption, and some gave it to their friends. Each of those ways of dealing with candy is reflection of their money personality. So what we did um, with the five conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage was we put a code on the back of the book, and we actually created a money personality assessment from 5 to 12. We created a separate money personality assessment for 13 to 18, and we created another money personality assessment for 18 and beyond. And so parents can actually buy the book, scratch off the foil um, on the back of the book, and you get five assessments per book, five free assessments per purchase of the book. So you can actually sit down with your kids, take, watch them take the assessment. Five to 12-year-olds need a little bit more directions. The teenagers take the ball and run. No problem. And 18 and beyond take the ball and run. And it will actually give you their money personalities. Then what you can do is you can look at the, the conversations that we outline in the book. Okay, so let's talk about allowance. How do you talk about allowance to a spender? How do you talk about allowance to a saver? How about a risk taker? How about a flyer? How about a security seeker? So we actually help parents based on the kids' money personalities talk about things like allowance, extracurricular activities. Um, for give our me's. teenagers, yeah, the give me's for the little ones. For our teenagers, technology, I mean, the peer pressure behind having the perfect clothes, having the perfect technology, being in every extracurricular activity that you can possibly come up with. So we actually help parents talk to their kids but you're actually speaking the child's language. And, and you know, what I love about this is it, there, there, there's a, stro- a stroke of genius here, uh, <laughs> Bethany <laughs> and Scott. There really is because parents today are beginning to realize, for example, in the arena of discipline, right. uh, that it needs to be unique to the child's personality. Some yeah. parents understand yep. you have a child and simply sending them to bed without dinner does not yep. get the message through. Right. And yet another child with whom you discipline by saying, I'm taking away the car keys, no, you can't go to the movies this weekend, or we're locking up your video game, may work for some children, may not work for others. So, so this, this, this one-size-fits-all approach that we've tried to do when it comes to parenting, particularly as it relates to money, I think the clear results of how, how much it's not working is in the divorce rates that we spoke of earlier. It's in the amount of consumer indebtedness that we have and the manner in which not only we, we manage money as a people, but listen, 17 heading toward $18 trillion debt, I want to tell you something there too. And, you know, let's, let's talk after the break about the whole issue, for example, of how we handle at the earliest ages your allowance. Now, when I was growing up, my dad had a bit of a philosophy when it came to allowance. Um, he said that uh, he was going to take sort of a, an approach that would help me hopefully someday grow up to be a Roosevelt Democrat. And by that, he meant that you got money from the government, but you had to work for it. That's as opposed to a Johnson Democrat, where you get money from the government, you're entitled to it. We'll take a time out, talk a bit more about the whole issue of money personalities and how to have those five money conversations with your kids. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us tonight. They are The Money Couple, the new book, Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage. We're talking about, quite frankly, how to 
prevent in large part a huge disaster once they get older adults, whether it be an impact on their finances or ultimately on their marriage. Understanding your child's unique money personality and then being able to educate your child based on that personality is really the key of what we're speaking about today. And and one of the ways in which, of course, that can and should be done is this whole matter of Bethany and Scott, of the way we teach our kids the value of money through their allowance. Now, as I mentioned, Dad had the belief that he wanted me to be a Roosevelt Democrat. He thought that it was okay if I got money from him, the government, as he formed it. Uh, But I had to work for it. And, of course, the issue of entitlement today is a major problem in our society. So how do we go about managing the whole issue of allowances based on our child's unique money personality? Well, that's a really great question. And let's just start with just the overall approach and what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to accomplish is having our children understand the basic concepts of, of money, how much it's worth, and how to... and where to spend it or save it. And so what one of the things that we've discovered is that if you teach children at a very young age, it's, I mean, you can start as as young as three, and you just give them $3 a week. They don't have to work for it yet. You just give them $3 a week. And with these $3, they have to put, they have three bins, if you will, $1 in to save, $1 in to spend, and $1 in to give. And giving is to charity or your church. And what happens is you want to train those neurons, if you will, those giving neurons and those saving neurons and those spending neurons, and you want to train them at a very young age that that money is something that you do something with and you need to be intentional with it. So again, at a very young age, not connected with chores, just you just give it to them. Again, to train that a third, a third, a third. Now, once they turn, like right around eight or nine, it depends on the child and how mature they are, now what you do is they start earning it. And the way that they earn it, and this is where as parents, you have to sit down and make a list of things that are above and beyond normal everyday chores. I don't know about you, but I think there are some, a lot of things that you do around your household that's just part of being a family. I mean, you don't get paid for it. It's just you got a roof over your head. This is what we do as a family to keep this house running. But if you're creative as a parent, you know, maybe it's cleaning out a pond or it's um, cleaning up a walkway or it's pulling, you know, excessive amounts of weeds or I don't know. You can just be very creative as parents and you come up with additional activities and things that they do that now they earn that money. A great example is um, our child, we had something that, that he was doing, and we told him that this particular job was going to be worth $5. Well, I mean $10. But he, you know what? He didn't work hard. And, you know, he's getting into those teenage years and starting to just kind of mosey around and go real slow. And I'm like, nope, sorry, all right, paid to Scott Doc, 5 bucks. And he's like, what? And it's like, so you're using money to show they're earning money. They're not just getting it. They're earning it. But here's the wonderful thing. Now they've earned it, but you know what their first reaction is? Because you trained those neurons, they take any money they earn, and they put a third in to spend, a third in to give, and a third in to save. Because those neurons have been trained. Then once they start to earn money through their jobs, when they start to get to be 16, you know, 17, 18, they get that money, and they start doing that same thing because that's just what's ingrained in them. 
So taking it in ages and stages and not being, there's so many parents that we see, well, I didn't have to, I had to work for any money that I got. And, you know, just having these, un, you know, putting our childhood into it. Listen, parenting has changed. Times have changed. There's so much more that our children can buy now than they used to be able to. And if we aren't intentional with this and using and inside of our home being the training ground for this, we're going to raise a whole nother generation that doesn't understand money. And this is absolutely key and crucial. So we are just excited to see so many parents applying this approach and just seeing great results, great results. And let's say you start late. Let's say it's, you have a 15-year-old and you haven't done any money management, you haven't talked about money at all, and da-da-da-da. You know what? It is never too late to start. And if you want to tell your 15-year-old, here's three bucks, and you're going to take a third, they'll be perfectly happy to take it. But you'll be, again, training that, those neurons to save, spend, and give. We appreciate the insights today, and I think for parents getting this conversation started, uh, Bethany, is critically important. And again, part of this is going to go back to the heart of not just wanting to be good parents and give our children the proper foundation necessary to be not only economically successful, but as we've suggested today, relationally successful as they grow up in life. I guess then that leads to the other important question, and that is, where do we start? Uh, how, How do we go about getting this dialogue started, understanding their personalities. And, you know, if you have six kids, you may wind up with an an interesting combination of different money personalities there. And then, of course, at the same time, you know, teaching our kids things like the art of compromise and and the dangers of entitlement and the connection between risk and reward. How do we start this conversation, Scott? Yeah, well, the the first thing is to go get the book. (laughs) Because the book out just outlines everything so easy for parents. We did not want this to be a complicated, hyper-involved book. We wanted to be able to have parents say, oh, okay, I've got, a, I've got an 8-year-old and I have a 17-year-old, and to be able to bounce around the book and really use it as a resource. The great thing about the book is that when you get the book, you can scratch off the code and back, and it gives you those five different money personality assessments that you can have your kids take right away. So it knowledge, 10 minutes. Yeah, it's not 10 minutes long. at the most. Um, knowledge is power, and if we can just take some time to get to know our kids, we're going to be able to have the conversations that they're going to be able to hear. So I'd say, you know, you can get the book at major booksellers. Um, it's in Christian bookstores all over the place, and it's called The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. If parents want to know what their money personalities are, they can go to themoneycouple.com and they can take that assessment for free. Now, that assessment is only going to be for free for about another two or three weeks um, before we start charging for that assessment. But if parents want to know who they are so that they can understand where maybe they're seeing differently uh, than their kids are when it comes to money, we've still got that at themoneycouple.com. It's a free assessment. It'll take you 10 minutes, and you can you know, buy, the, buy the five money conversations to have with your kids right there as well. Excellent. And the book is available through, I guess, the usual suspects, Amazon, and directly through your website as well. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, it's at most, in most Christian bookstores as well. Excellent. Again, the book is called simply Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage and uh, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through their website at themoneycouple.com. That's themoneycouple.com. And our thanks to Scott and Bethany Palmer for being with us tonight and offering those insights. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. W Publishing is actually the cover, but uh, Thomas Nelson is is the main publisher. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.